The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. God, which is called by the name of the Lord of Hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of the da- city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm on staff here at Restoration. Just to give another plug to Stephen and the work of RUF, 
Uh, my wife and I met at RUF at Ole Miss, the Harvard of the South, as some of you may know it. And <laughs> it was life-changing for us. We love that ministry. So I would encourage you to go and hear more about it. And if they ask for money, just throw some money their way. Um, our lives would look very different if we did not have RUF. Uh, there are a lot of difficult things in the Bible. And we're pretty intentional here to not just skip over them or glaze over them. It's kind of dishonoring to you, dishonoring to God. So we really try to, to just hit them when they come. And so instead of waiting till the end of the sermon to talk about that last line in that passage, let's talk about it now. Uh, that last line it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. I want to be very clear, infertility is not a curse from God. Right? A lot of us in this church either had or are having a hard time getting pregnant. Uh, and that does not mean that you did something to upset God. Right? This is a very specific time in Israel's history, with the main point being that King Saul, his line is over. Uh, king Saul was the first king of Israel. He did a miserable job, went away from God. And this is clearly saying that the line that goes to Jesus is not going to come through Saul. It's done. Um, and we're going to see in a few weeks that God actually chooses not the royal princess Michael, but the commoner Bathsheba, who David sinned horribly against. God uses her to kind of be the ancestor to King Jesus from a human perspective. It's beautiful. Um, and Jesus is going to say a few times in the New Testament, like he and his disciples will be walking along and they'll see someone who's blind. Or they'll talk about this tower that fell and killed like 18 people. And his disciples or some folks will ask like, well, who sinned? Was it their parents? Was it those people? And Jesus is very clear, quick to put the kibosh in that. He says, no, it, the things that happened to these people is not because of their sin. God's not trying to get back at those people. Um, struggling to have children is difficult enough. Please don't believe the lie that God is trying to somehow get back at you, that you got to kind of make up for something. Is that helpful? I mean, it's a hard situation anyway, but this is not saying that God gets you back for something that you did or your parents did or your grandparents did. Um, I hope that's helpful. We've been making our way through the life of David for a while now, and to look at the life of David is really just to look at a life of just normal spirituality, right? David has highs and lows, like we do. At times, David has incredible faith in God, and at times he does horrible, horrible things. Uh, and this morning, we're going to look at an event in David's life that is equal parts terrifying and comforting. And it's equally terrifying and comforting uh, because it involves a personal encounter with God. It involves having a right view of the God of the universe. It's what the Bible often calls the fear of the Lord, right? Knowing that God is good and loving and he's holy and he's just. Uh, if you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis does a great job talking about this. All the kids are kind of huddled in the beaver's hut and the kids are like, oh, Aslan is a Christ figure. He says, he's a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe. Who said anything about safe? Uh, he's not safe, but he's good. He says, he's the king, I tell you. Uh, and with that in mind, let's pray and ask God to help us figure out what's going on here. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us because you love us and you want us to be, uh, to know you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in it. Help us to have a clear view of you and worship you well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. After reading this passage, I feel a little bit like Mr. Beaver. This isn't a fun passage by any means, but it's good. Uh, and if you're here this morning and you're not sure what you believe, you're exploring Christianity, we're so glad you're here. 
And what I want you to have in mind as we're going through this is if you were going to just make up a religion that's not true, if this is fake, would you put this in your Bible? <laughs> no way. You would take, get this out. This is like, be like the very first thing you, you take out. Uh, would you include a story about a guy getting struck dead by God because he touched a box? No. Um, and if you've ever heard someone say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. He's a little bit meaner. Well, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Um, it's the same God. God inspired human authors to write the Bible so that we can know who he is. Right? He, he's not to be softened by whatever expectations we bring coming to him. And so really our goal this morning is to make sure we have a correct view of who God is. Or at the very least, we're moving towards having a right view of who God is. Uh, because even today, this morning, if you walk with Jesus, your walk with the Lord has to be with this in mind. God is good. He's gracious. He's merciful. And he's holy and just and he's righteous and he's utterly opposed to sin. Those are a lot of Christianese words I just threw at you, but we're going to unpack some of those. Uh, but put another way, in terms of our passage this morning, following God means you got to keep these two things in mind. Danger and dancing. Right? Those are our two categories for this morning. Danger and dancing. So David is finally king. And if you enjoy super violent stories with lots of intrigue, political intrigue, you should go back and read the last five or six chapters because that's all of what it is. It's like a Mission Impossible Quentin Tarantino movie. It's great. Uh, but David has established Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel, and his first order of business is to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. This is a very good thing for David to do. And what he's doing is he's very publicly saying, I want God to be the center of my kingdom. He said, I know I'm the king, but God is the ultimate king. I want to lead under him. We need to have God's presence with us. Um, so what exactly is the Ark? Has everybody seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Were you scarred like I was as a child when their faces were melted off when the Nazis opened up the Ark? <laughs> it was horrifying to watch as a kid. But the way the Ark actually looks is very accurate, right? Uh, it had the gold cherubim with the wings and everything on it. Uh, the Ark, what our passage calls the Ark of God, is this wooden box covered in gold, and it signified God's presence on earth. That was the place. God's everywhere, but in that specific place was his special presence. And so there's three things that God is telling his people by giving them the ark. One is that God reveals himself to his people. There's a couple things inside the ark, but I think the most important was these stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments of God. So it was God's law. It was God telling his people what he loves, what he hates, what he's for, what he's against, the kind of the ways of his kingdom. Uh, two, the ark told God's people that he was a God of reconciliation and mercy and forgiveness. Um, kind of at the very top where the cherubim's wings are. That's called the mercy seat. Uh, but there are very clear instructions in Scripture, mostly in the book of Leviticus, where God tells his people how to make sacrifices. And once a, once a year, it's called the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go behind a super thick curtain into the place called the Holy of Holies, where the ark was, and he would offer sacrifices. He would sprinkle blood on the ark, and he'd sprinkle it around it. Um, and it was God telling his people, you are forgiven, and you can be in my presence because blood was shed on your behalf. More on that later. Three, finally, uh, the ark signifies God's rule and reign. A lot of times it's going to be called the, the footstool of God. And ancient kings would have a footstool to signify that they were over everything. And so when God puts his ark on the earth, and he says, this is my presence, this is my footstool. God is saying he is above everything on this planet. One of the commentators I've been reading for this series, it says this about the ark. It says, the ark wasn't an image of God, 
but it is a sacrament of his presence. That's really important. The ark wasn't just a reminder of God, uh, but just like our sacraments, like we had a baptism earlier this morning to the earlier service, and we're going to do the Lord's Supper later. Those are sacraments. This commentator says it's a visible reality uh, communicating an invisible truth. It's something we can see and touch and taste, and it's communicating some like an even greater invisible reality and truth. The ark was a way for God to say, I am with my people. Right? Verse 2, it says, The Lord of hosts sits enthroned on the cherubim. So do we see now why David is so anxious to get the ark back into Jerusalem? It's the presence of God. And if David wants to rule uh, as king, following the ultimate king, this is incredibly important to bring the ark back in. Look back at verse 3, if you've got it open. It says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. The ark had just been sitting in some guy's house for years. And so David brings like 30,000 people up to go make a parade and take it back. It's a lot of people. And they're all partying and they're taking the ark back to Jerusalem, aren't they? Verse 5 says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. It's like a homecoming parade on steroids. And for good reason, right? The presence of God is coming back to his people. Uh, that's a good reason to celebrate. You know, if anything can get me emotional, it's either seen in person or watching those videos of soldiers kind of being reunited with their families after they've been away for a long time. Uh, especially like when the soldiers kind of surprise their kids. It just You just have to melt when you watch those videos. And it's so beautiful, it's because they're finally coming home. Like they're where they belong with their family. So this giant celebration, it's kind of a homecoming of sorts of the presence of God. But on the way home, one of the oxen stumbles, and as the cart is sliding into the mud, a guy named Uzzah reaches out to stop it, and he's struck dead. He's knocked down by God. Party's over, kind of record scratches. And if this doesn't make you squirm a little bit, I don't know if you're paying attention or not. Because verse 8 says even David is angry. Uzzah did what probably a lot of us would have done, right? He's trying to do what he thought was right. He's seen the presence of God, the ark sliding into the mud, and he tries to stop it, and yet God strikes him down. So what do we make of this? Is God just a cosmic bully? Is he just being mean? Does he just kind of lose his temper? Well, no. And to figure out why, we have to go back to the book of Numbers. There is a book called Numbers in the Bible. It's probably not your favorite book that you go to. It's, it's dense. Uh, but in Numbers chapter 4, God gives his people very specific reasons or very specific ways to transport the ark. And all those rules are, one, the ark has to be covered. It, it can't just be kind of out in the open. Two, it has to be carried, right? As opposed to being, I don't know, stuck in the back of an ox cart where it could tip over. They had these gold rings that they would slide these poles through and they would carry it like that so it didn't actually trip and, and fall into the mud. Um, and to top it all off, it had to be carried by Levites. Uh, priests from the tribe of Levi, and Abinadab and or Uzzah in Ohio, they were not Levites. Did you catch that? Every single rule that God had given them as instructions to how to carry the ark, they just totally disregarded. Uzzah had grown up with the ark in his house, and because he was familiar with it, he wrongly came to have a casual relationship with it, and therefore a casual relationship with God, or at the very least, a casual relationship with how he related to God. I don't need God to tell me how to relate to him, right? I'll relate to God how I want to relate to him. Have you ever thought that? 
Have you ever bumped up against something in scripture uh, that you didn't like or that you thought would be offensive to someone you love or you care about? I think you will eventually hit something if you read it through it. Uh, have you ever kind of bumped into something like that and you just kind of want to sweep it under the rug, right? Have you ever thought, well, I don't need theology. I don't need a church. I don't need kind of more mature Christians who have been there before. I don't really need a deep understanding of the Old Testament. I don't need to sing meaningful songs. I don't need to confess my sins. I don't really need communion. It's just me and Jesus. That's all that matters. Y'all, the church, as messy, messy, messy as it can be and is, and I love this church, and it will be a mess at some point, the church is God's gift to those people who follow him. Not only for all the fun and the encouragement and the, the joy and community it can bring, but the church keeps you from going down a road that is utterly opposed to what God wants for you. The church keeps you from relating to God casually in the way that you want to. And so in a very public, kind of startling way, God is saying to his people here, you cannot come to me and relate to me on your terms. Yes, I'm present with you in a very real spiritual way here in the ark, but do not forget that I am the one who created you. You cannot treat me casually, God is saying, because I'm holy. You know that you've encountered God and you have a right view of the God of the universe when you realize that God is holy and you are not. And you know you've understood and you've accepted the gospel when you realize that you cannot possibly come to God on your own terms. It has to be on God's terms, right? A casual relationship with God is less than what God intends for you, even if you think it might be better. Wanting only the nice parts of God, right? The forgiveness, the grace, the love, without the rest of God. The, of God. the Bible has a word for that, right? Whenever the Bible talks about idolatry, that's what it means. When you try to shape God into your own image, you try to make the God that you want or you think would be better. This passage is a wake-up call for us, isn't it? Especially those of us who have grown up in the church. We've become very comfortable with, you know, we know a lot of the Bible. Uh, we know kind of the Christian lingo. Are you like Uzzah this morning? You've grown up learning about God. You know all the songs. You know the words. You might even have this kind of ingrained desire to be loving and helpful and kind and generous. You know a lot about God. But do you know God? Have we become so familiar with God and kind of this cultural Christianity, you know, the way we're supposed to think and act, that we're just kind of going through the motions this morning? You know, we sing the songs without really thinking about it. Uh, you can come to the Lord's Supper without a second thought. You can hear beautiful, unbelievable promises from God in Scripture. And yet the kind of the rest of your week just doesn't really seem to be affected by a knowledge of God or a walk with him. I want you to think about the last book series you get into, for those of you who are readers. Uh, for the rest of you, kind of the last big TV show you got really invested in. Or maybe you started exercising. Uh, what happens when you start something new and you really like it, right? You find out that there are five more books in that series. Netflix just dropped a whole new season. Uh, or you realize the difference like that a, a good running shoe can make or even like really nice socks. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time researching and trying to figure out what all you can possibly get your hands on to so you can enjoy this more, right? You'll, you'll blow through all those books in the series. You stay up till three o'clock in the morning finishing that season. Not me, of course, maybe you guys. Uh, you, you, you do everything you can. You collect every piece of that set that you're kind of collecting for your new hobby. Do you know the God of the Bible? The God who's unchanging, he's perfect. He's holy and good. He's light and he's truth. The God who we sang about earlier in that song, Making All Things New. It, I'd never heard that before. It's beautiful. That line, 
Uh, the world was good. The world has fallen. The world will be redeemed. Right. Or are you content in having a God who just accepts whatever you want to do because it just makes you feel good for a brief moment? A God who kind of winks at the things that he forbids, even though it runs contrary to everything he's told you in Scripture. Put another way, do you believe in a God who can say no to you? Do you know the God who created everything and therefore gets to lay down the order of everything? Or do you have a casual relationship with this God who, although he tells you what he loves and he hates, if you disagree with him, no big deal. I want to say this gently, but if that's you, do you realize who you're really worshiping? Do you realize who you've actually set as the ultimate authority in your life? It's you. It's ourselves. Right? If you are the only one who can say no in your life, and you, only you have the power to veto something, you're effectively worshiping yourself. You've kind of set yourself up on the throne. When you, re, when you seek out the real living God as he is revealed in Scripture, it involves danger. Right? A God who's holy and just, who actually cares about what you do and how you speak. But, and this is the good news for everyone to hear, especially in the midst of a pretty heavy, dreary sermon maybe, an encounter with the real living God involves dancing. All right, look back at verse 9. Uzzah struck down, and verse 9 says, And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Right, David understands the danger here. Right? David knows that God is holy and he is not. And so David's answer to this is to stick the ark in some guy named Obed-Edom's house. It's a great name. Any of you who are pregnant, you know, tuck that one away. <laughs> uh, but he comes to him and he essentially says, hey, Obed-Edom, old buddy, long time no see. Uh, we, we need to leave this ark here at your house. No big deal. It's not like, it's not like anybody's died from touching it lately. Uh, we're just going to leave it here and <laughs> just leave it and go. Uh, and three months later, it turns out that God is blessing Obed-Edom's family and his house. And David gets excited, and they throw another party, and they bring even more people and more celebration. They bring the ark into Jerusalem, and David dances like a white boy at Bonnaroo. Beautiful. Because David knows now, even better than before, that the presence of God is meant to be a blessing. Right? When you relate to God on his terms, you are living life the way he intended it. So the point of this story is not, well, God is grumpy, so watch out. The point of this story, and really the whole story of Scripture, is that God is both forgiving and holy. He's a God of kindness and justice, right? God is a consuming fire, and he's the friend of sinners. Knowing God entails danger and dancing, and you can't have one without the other. I mean, think about your own life. Do you lean more heavily towards danger? kind of focusing on how infinite and powerful and glorious and perfect God is, or towards dancing, kind of focusing on the tenderness and the patience and the love of God? Do you live in fear of God, wondering how he could possibly love you and accept you after everything you've done, the things you've said, the way you've treated people, the people you've been with, you know, the choices you've made? You've got to watch out and be good or else God will get you. It's crucial for us to understand that our going against God drives a rift between us and God. It's what the Bible calls sin. But please hear this. You, you haven't known the real God if, if it's all danger and no dancing, right? All fear and no joy. On the other hand, if you're all dancing and no danger, you'll inevitably turn God into a buddy who doesn't really care what you do. Hey, it's all forgiven, so live it up. 
David shows us here that you have to have both in order to have a right view of God. Uzzah saw God as a buddy. Remember, he grew up with the ark in his house. Uh, He didn't really care if he followed his rules or not. Uzzah did what he thought was right. And even though he had good intentions, um, not wanting the ark to get dirty, he was approaching God the way he wanted to, not the way God told him to. Michael, David's wife, approached God wrongly as well, but kind of from the other end of the spectrum. It had nothing to do with dancing and joy. She was only concerned about appearances and how everybody was going to perceive them, the, the royal couple. Uzzah and Michael both approached God in ways that they thought were right, and yet there were ways in which God never prescribed. They had good intentions about approaching God, but it was a God of their own making. Do we see that? If you look back over the passage, you notice that David treats the ark differently the second time when he brings it in. He offers sacrifices, and he has the ark carried in the way that God told them to. David realizes that in order for God to dwell with his people, in all his holiness and his perfection, blood must be shed. Sin must be dealt with. And in his grace, God provided the sacrificial system. Right? God allowed his presence to be with sinful men and women, provided that blood was shed on their behalf. The Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. And so in order for God and his people to be in a right relationship, there must be blood. There must be death. Someone or something had to die for sinning against the holy God. And the foundation for the gospel, this beautiful truth of it, is that God in his goodness accepts a substitute. Right? He accepts the blood of another to pay the price that we owe. Look back at verse 13. It says, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. Do you catch that? They take six steps, they sacrifice an animal. They take another six steps, they sacrifice an animal. They take another six steps, sacrifice an animal. There must be blood to be in God's presence. And the road back to Jerusalem would have been blood-soaked. There's just one problem, though. And in the New Testament book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, it says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and the goats to take away sin. Now, why do you think that is? They're just animals. Right? As cute as they are, as delicious as a lot of them are, they are not made in the image of God like humans are. And because it was humans who brought sin into the world, it had to be a human to pay for the sin. But again, the blood of a sinful human can't pay for anyone else's sin other than their own. And by then, they're dead. Right? A guilty human has to pay for their own sin. The only payment for sinful men and women would be for someone who has never sinned to willingly offer their life as a sacrifice. And not only that, that sacrifice would have to have this infinite store of goodness and righteousness to be able to pay for the sins of others. Do we see then just how beautiful Jesus is? It's on the cross where we see a right view of God. On the cross, we see the justice and the holiness of God, that our sin is so offensive to God that it requires death. And yet, on the cross, we see the love and the grace and the mercy of God, that God himself would come in the flesh Perfect God made perfect man, and he would stand in our place as a substitute. Do you doubt that God takes sin seriously? Look at the cross. Do you doubt that God loves you? Look at the cross. Instead of rightfully destroying us for our rebellion, the gospel says that God destroyed his own son. 
The true living God is so holy and so dangerous, so perfect and unwilling to allow any imperfection to go on forever in his world that any sin leads to death. The true living God is so good and kind, though, that Jesus would willingly be separated from the Father in order to bridge the gap between us and God. To truly know God, you've got to hold both the danger and the dancing, his holiness and his love. And the only way you can be in a right relationship with God is if you come on his terms. And his terms are simple. Know your sin and know your Savior. Know the danger of sinning against a holy God and yet know the absolute joy that Jesus willingly went to the cross and shed his own blood for you. Amen? And let me pray. Father, we swing wildly sometimes between these two ideas of danger and dancing, uh, knowing your holiness and yet your kindness and patience with us. Uh, would you help us to hold both of those things at the same time, always looking at the cross? Our sin was so bad that Jesus had to come, but he loves us so much that he joyfully came. Or would you propel us out of this place into our homes and our workplaces, uh, knowing who you are and giving people an accurate view of who you are. Uh, you are so much better than anything we could possibly make up in our minds. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Out of this place, into our homes and our workplaces, uh, knowing who you are and giving people an accurate view of who you are. Uh, you are so much better than anything we could possibly make up in our minds. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.